Directors UK podcast. In this episode, you'll hear from the makers of the documentary Mosul, Olivier Sarville and James Jones, as they talk to Ollie Lambert about shooting in extreme hostile environments, human rights violations, and their decision to not add commentary to the film. This recording is on the quiet side, so I would advise you to turn it up. while you work mm. out what you're doing, but apparently the first frame of all your rushes was just annoyingly good. Well, did you have a sort of discipline in terms of any parameters you'd put around yourself in terms of when you would turn over and when you wouldn't? Well, the first thing is because the logistic was a nightmare. Mm. Uh, I, need to be, uh, you know, I need to be careful with batteries, with carts. It was very hard and difficult to back up, obviously, because I was never going back uh, to Herbie, for I was never leaving the battlefield. Right. So I was staying with them night and day, sleeping, eating with them, and maybe for three days, four times. Sometimes I didn't have batteries, so I could not back up. So when I was pressing record, actually, I have to be disciplined because mm-hmm. I didn't want to losing cart or, you know, and batteries. So I didn't shoot a lot, actually. You would be surprised that during all those months, I've had less than 100 hours, I think. Of footage, definitely less than that. Half maybe that. sixty, maybe sixty hours for about six months. Uh, and did you pay a price for that? I mean, did you feel that you missed things as a result? You always think, obviously, you m- maybe you've missed something, but I never have any regret really. And I'm always, I'm try, I'm happy with what I have. Mm. I don't want to torture myself and think, oh, I could have, I missed probably a sequence here and there. So now, in, in general, I don't regret it. Mm. And it doesn't mean that if you overshoot, you will get something better. And maybe you will have spent more time in the edit trying to get the best shot. But actually, because I'm shooting for the edit, soon as I have a sequence, I know, you know I have the shot that I need. Mm-hmm. So I don't need to <coughs> press record for two hours and try to follow those guys all around. Mm-hmm. I might come back to that, actually. That's an interesting point. Mm-hmm. And before I just come on to, to James and your role in all this, Olivia, just, just staying on the camera works, I know that's something that's, that's going to be in a lot of people's minds. You have you. I mean, what is your background? Because photographically, it's very strong. Are you coming out of stills or? Uh, I did. I spent a few years starting uh, uh, being a photojournalist, uh-huh. uh, still uh, shooting stills. But then I turned to a news cameraman, and uh, for many years I was shooting news. But I, I always was very frustrated uh, because when you do news, obviously it's a two-minute, three-minute report. And even when I'm watching this now, 40 minutes, it feels very, very short, mm. actually. Uh, so my background, and I'm coming from still photography, news, and then now really enjoying and really love to do the longer format. Right, right. And so, James, it's a sort of, it's a curious piece, this. Could, and how does it work between you two? I mean, how did you end up? Uh, it's a total nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, it, sh- it shouldn't really work because I'm used to making my own films mm. that I've shot myself. Um, and Olivier is, you know, not an easy person in many ways because he's obsessive and uh, a perfectionist. So really, I, you know, I think when Dan called and said, do you want to... Because this started in January after his first trip as a 20-minute film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had two weeks to cut it together. And we could tell the footage was beautiful, but we kind of didn't know much more than that. And we just like, cobbled it together, lots of commentary, and kind of made it work. But I think all of us, Dan, Olivier, the editor, and I, all came away thinking this could be something 
much more substantial. You know, he's got, he shoots so beautifully. Like, mm. It just looks like a mm. movie. And he's got this amazing access to these guys. He's not only in the most dangerous place on earth, but he's got these soldiers behaving like he's not there. Mm. You know, he doesn't have a fixer, doesn't have a translator, and they completely forget he's there. Um, whether they're talking to their girlfriend or, you know, roughing up a prisoner or whatever. Uh, so I kind of came on board as like a producer and Olivier went back for another trip. Um, and then after he'd done all his trips, he and I went on a kind of road trip around <coughs> Iraq uh, to kind of track, track all the soldiers down and film the master interviews and kind of back, you know, tell their story yeah. with the ones who were still alive. Um, and I don't, I don't really know why it does work between us, because it really shouldn't. But I think both of us are very passionate and focus on the film being as good as it possibly can be. Mm -hmm. And I think we kind of recognize that the other person brings something that we don't have. And so it's just a kind of constant process of making it better and better. And Dan as well like, is brilliant in the edit. And just all of us like, pushing in the same way and none of us really having like, an ego that gets in the way. Like, none of us need to feel like we walk out of the room and we were right. Mm -hmm. As long as like, we recognize that that person has made the film 1% better, then that, that works. Olivia, what has, what has James got that you haven't? And I'm going to ask you the same question in a minute. Well, to start with James, he's uh, a very talented director. He has much more experience. When, when we started, at, at the really beginning, uh, I said to, uh, to Dan, uh, if we're making that film, you know, I want James, James Jones to be on board with me. Uh, and so we have both different skills, and we are both very passionate. And I, ca I could not work with someone that doesn't have, you know, the spark, that doesn't have the passion. You know, mm. I, I find it very, uh, I'm bored. Mm. So I need someone that, that got it, that got a passion. Mm. And it's, you know, it, it works very well, actually. It works very well. It's funny because you had a reputation for being difficult. Yeah. But actually, the... Yeah. Uh, You've you know, clearly broken the ice between <laughs> each other. <Yeah. laughs> but actually, as long as you feel like the other person cared, he might say... I hate that shot, Olivia. I can't believe you've got another silhouette or whatever. And you, if, if you kind of have faith that that person knows what he's talking about and really believes it, you'll back down. Yeah, exactly. It's when you feel like someone's being sloppy or just not listening to you that that drives you crazy. Yeah. I could have done pretty easy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just still slightly unclear on, your, on how you sort of on what your roles are because clearly you're, you're, you're shooting Olivier but you're, yeah. you're a lot more than just a cameraman yeah. and James you're a director yeah. but it's also kind of you're not the you're a co-director with yeah. Olivier so I just it's an unusual I wonder how that what, what are you each bringing that the other cannot bring I suppose is my question I guess probably you know I've done more kind of long form documentaries mm -hmm. so in terms of the kind of arc in terms of like the kind of building a film and uh, you know the story as a whole mm. what it needs in terms of like a, you know moments of drama moments of calm maybe I have more but actually in terms of like the you know Olivier edits as well like in terms of cutting a scene he has a very you know he's brilliant uh, so I think it's kind of you know the way it would work is in the edit I'd be sat next to Ella the editor who probably would tell a different story but she probably got a bit squeezed in the truth, because Olivia and I had like very These two clear enormous ideas. egos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think she probably feels like she didn't get room because you know three people really imposing their mm. vision on a film would be a lot. Mm. So I think probably, you know, I would kind of drive it, I guess, in the edit, and then 
as we were like cutting a scene, Olivier would be kind of Ella's brain a little mm -hmm. bit in terms of like which shots to use. So like, right. I guess like, had it been a more, uh, had it been an editor who was m more of an ego, or Ella's brilliant, but she's quite inexperienced, so probably more like malleable, I would mm -hmm. say. So it meant that I could kind of do the producer director role in the edit, and Olivier was kind of Ella's brain a little bit in terms of like the mechanics of cutting. <laughs> Ella's in, brain. Thank God, thank God Ella's clearly not here tonight. You know, I mean, no. that's not fair. Ella has her own brain. Ella has her own brain. There is and something brilliant, but you know. There is something else, though, because it's not, you know, I was there and I needed to bring also, you know, how was it to be on the field with yes. it? So it was not like. It's interesting. Uh, so really share, you know, mm. you know, both our, our different skills and working on together on a direction and we've done and the whole team and it was very, everyone compliment is the word compliment mm. they complimented each, each other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's been, I've got one more thing to ask before. I'm sure you've got there's questions in the room, but there's it's interesting that you say that one of the one th of the many things you bring to the edit, I suppose, is that sense of what it was actually like to be there. Because watching it a second time tonight, I think what struck me most was that, well, it, firstly, it, remi it reminded me that it, it, as a film, it reminds me of Helen Back Again. I don't know if anyone's seen that, the Dan Fung Dennis film. Which is, that was the first film I'd seen shot on a DSLR, and that was in a, a conflict zone, because it was so beautifully uh, shot. But what this film is more of, that perhaps Helen Back Again is, is, is less of, is that this feels more like a mood piece to me. Yeah, there are characters. There is, a, there, is a, there is a kind of loose arc, there's a passing of time and there's the end of a battle. But really I would struggle to identify individual characters or their narratives, but I'm just getting a sense of the sort of loss and the chaos and the dirt of it. And so it's interesting that you talked earlier about you know you have a scene and that James, you talked about bringing a sort of an, an arc and a narrative. In a strange way, I think that they were the, the sort of less prominent elements of the film. I just, I'm coming away with it now as just a sense of this mad time, and I would struggle to name any of the characters. And I, I, and I don't mean that in any way as a criticism, actually. I think that it's, it's strong in that way. I wonder if you are conscious of that, and whether that was deliberate or something that emerged in the edit, or whether you just feel deeply insulted and don't want to answer that question. <laughs> um, I would say, yeah, I think that's probably more the case in the 40 minutes. In the longer version, there's probably more a sense of a, a, a kind of their, them becoming more exhausted and Right. But yeah, I think certainly when we first saw your footage, what was interesting was the kind of the atmosphere, the shades of grey. Right. You know, and, and you know, we've been asked at another Q and A, like, what is this film? What's its message? And there isn't really a message. Terrible it's, question. Yeah, terrible question. But like, they asked it in quite a kind of confrontational way. It's like, what should I? I'm confused. What should I take away? Right. And I think what it is is it's a kind of unvarnished, unvarnished, maybe not the right word, but it, it's the kind of reality of war in that these guys are kind of doing their best, sometimes flawed, you know, feel very strongly about each other, losing their friends, and it's just a kind of, it's a personal experience um, of a very horrific situation. Um, but it's not like, you know, it, it's not a campaigning film. It's not saying sure. these guys are committing war crimes. It's, not, it's a kind of, yeah, it's a, it's a, a very vivid representation of war. I mean, it's interesting you say it's unvarnished, but then, I mean, in a sense, I know you question yeah, yeah. it, but in a way, I think if I, had, if I had a criticism, it would be that it's almost too beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of people in the room who've been in similar places, if not most of itself, and it's, it's usually disgusting and smelly, and actually, it, it all looks rather sort of 
beautiful, and and I, I, I don't know. I, I think that would I be my slight. I understand, but yeah. it's something you know. I have been people told me before. It's something that really surprised me that people think you cannot shoot war in an aesthetic way. Right. I mean, all the photojournalists in yeah. the world, all the best photojournalists in the world that we reward with WordPress, Visa, mm. and I don't compare myself to James Natchway. I was just about to mention Nobody this, yeah. will say to James Natchway, it's suffering, is death, it's war. Why your shot is yeah, not overexposed? Yeah, yeah. And to be honest, the reality is not overexposed. Mm. When you are on the battlefield, uh, if I'm not going to almost force myself to screw my shot, <laughs> just to feel like people think it's more real, right. because it's yeah. not true. And people yeah. think, yeah. oh, you know, I'm using my mobile phone, it's, it's a war zone, something's happening. But actually, when you have been to a lot of war zones, this is not the reality. The reality is not the shaky movement. This is not the overexposed shot. This is not someone running with a camera like this, like a maniac running. Yeah. It's, it, that's not the, the reality. Mm. That's a kind of cheap trick in a way of bringing drama, isn't it? So sure. it's just, if you see the camera shaking and someone running and panting, you think, oh, it's dangerous. Yeah. Whereas like when Olivier's camera is shaking and he's panting, you know it's really, really dangerous. Yeah, yeah, know, sure. because I think it's a, I mean, actually, I was going to mention James Natchway because I think it's a very good point that they were there. They can still, I mean, images can still represent something that's really horrific, but still have some kind of aesthetic beauty to them. And I think exactly. that's, um, it's a great credit to the film. I've guffed on long enough. I'm sure there's, there's questions around. So, yes. You've partly touched on, on the topic already, but what I wanted to know was, did you have a sense of what the narrative was before you went? Those of us that work in TV always have to have a very clear idea of the story that you're telling. Did you know what story you wanted to tell? Or was it capturing really good moments and then coming back and seeing what you had and what story you wanted to tell and filling those gaps with master interviews? Well, I'm not going to a war zone just taking a gamble. So I need to have a story. At least I need to have an idea. Uh, obviously, uh, when you go to that type of environment, you never know really what you're going to get. But I met a uh, few of those guys a few months before the start of the offensive in Fallujah during the battle. Uh, Han Mao, the young lieutenant, was speaking a little bit English. And I met the, the commander of the unit, and they gave me that access. And I thought, all right, maybe you know, if I go to war zone, go back to war zone, and if I can be embedded with those guys, maybe that's the story, telling the story of the battle with with those characters. So the thing is, I don't speak Arabic. Uh, I don't have a translator. I don't have a fixer with me uh, for several reasons. I, I can't come back to it. So I don't really know what they say on the field. So I really have to follow my instinct and, and try to catch uh, the best conversation, the best uh, sequences I can. But I don't know what they're saying. It's actually one probably the best moment when I come back when actually we start to do all the translation and actually understand hmm. what they were <laughs> all talking about. There is a sequence with a kid when they're a bit, uh, you know, not very friendly with the young kid at the school. Hmm. I had no idea at the time they were bribing him to, to kill him. Uh, so that that's part of the, but I knew, I knew that I had a story and actually it took me a few more weeks when I start to be there, they say, oh, I'm getting closer and closer to those guys. 
and I think that will be the narrative that will be embedded with them as long as possible, and then we will try to meet them outside the battlefield. I don't know if I can, sorry. I mean, what, what comes out of that, which is <coughs> extraordinary, is that so you're, to what extent did you communicate with the soldiers that you're with? So you're on your own, you don't speak Arabic. Sounds like a nightmare. It, it is. Uh, I mean, very, very basic, as you can imagine, communication. Uh, Anmar, the lieutenant, speaks English a little bit, but he's a squad leader, he's pretty busy. And when he's not busy, he spends his time talking to his girlfriend. Uh, so I don't have time really to you know, having, making exchange, talking to him. Mm. But there is uh, so many ways to uh, communicate with people. You could just sure. smile, watching them. And actually, because I don't understand what they're saying, I'm kind of deaf. I have to develop more senses, so I right. have to be more aware of the space because I don't understand what they're saying. So I have to, you know, trust myself even more. I need to be more, uh, more aware about what's happening. Mm. So actually it helped me a lot. And they were always trying, forcing themselves to communicate with me because they were very nice <laughs> with me in, in general right. at the end. Right. I was a bit, I think, the mascot of the, of, of the squad. But if I had a fixer with me, if I had a translator with me, I think I would have lost uh, the connection because they will have not forced themselves to communicate with me. Right. They will have come to the uh, translator and say, Okay, say the cameraman, he cannot do this, he cannot do that, what is he doing? But with me, about a few days, they give up. You know, I, I don't understand what he's saying, so I'm not sure okay. well, like he as, can be here. As yeah. an experiment for documentary making, it's really interesting. It's mm. like the opposite of having like an American news reporter say, yeah, yeah, yeah. hey, why did you just rough up that kid or whatever, yeah, you know, yeah. having a whole crew, just having Olivia there, and they, gen they know he can't understand what they say. So they just, you it know, feel safe as a result. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's extraordinary how much does come out that there's a... I think, it, who did that film, that series, Shanghai Vice? Is it Phil Agland? Yeah. Phil Agland. That he did a series, Shanghai, Shanghai Vice, about these cops in Beijing, doesn't speak any Chinese. And there's one sequence that he filmed on Super 16 of someone being interrogated. And it's the most extraordinary scene. And he, Phil Agland, talked extensively about how he just knew, you feel the intensity. You feel it, yeah. And you can feel the nuances of a lot of conversations when you tune in different sort of frequencies, as it were. Yeah. Anyway, Hannah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose. I suppose. Is that, can you give some sense of how the how these decisions developed in terms of lack of commentary? Yeah. Whether you would call it a mood piece, whether you'd, you know, in terms of sort of abdicating a lot of narrative, not not abdicating narrative. That's too strong. But it's not driven by a pumping narrative. And I think that's yeah. a strength, not a weakness. But these are quite big decisions and quite bold decisions to make. And I wonder how you. Is that, so yeah, yeah, how did you yeah, end so up the, the, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. So, well, it's a really good question. And like, it was uh, a, I, I think quite early on, we, yeah. we thought it could work without commentary. Uh, and then the two people we were making it for, PBS and Channel 4. PBS, I mean, Dan was kind of open-minded, but thought it might need a bit. Channel 4 were very much like, it's definitely going to need commentary. It's not in English. Like, we can't just have Arabic for an hour with, with no, no one holding your hand. Um, and in the end, I mean, the Channel 4 version is longer than that. Oh, that's but not it the Channel 4 version, sorry. No. I it sounds like there's, no, no, no. there's quite a few versions. Do you want to explain okay. how that so works? This, is, there's a, this will broadcast on PBS, but it's a, it's a shorter film. There's a Channel 4 version, which is a Channel 4 hour, and there's a... And there's commentary. 
No, it's not going to. So we got away with. I mean, we won the fight, which we didn't expect at all because it was the Channel Four Current Affairs who instinctively, you know, terrified of losing viewers in the first minute if you don't hear an English voice. Um, so you know, maybe you sacrifice something in terms of clarity, but I hope that you're not you're not confused and lost. You're just kind of in the... Yeah, and it makes it less alternative. It makes it less kind of patronising in a way, which commentary can always have a tendency to do, no matter what the style of the voice mm. is, I think. Mm. So, yeah. I, I have to say also for the... For the What's that? The, 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 the hour-long <laughs> yeah. version it has an extra character, more kind of civilians, and more about the kind of shades of grey of who's your friend, who's your enemy, that kind of thing. Um, also, also, we get the interview much later, so it was quite stressful because we wanted to do yeah. it without the commentary, but we didn't have the master interview yet. It's a miracle that we've got all those soldiers exactly. to actually sit down and in the film. From the squad, many of them went killed and wounded, so of course I have film more character, but some unfortunately were, uh, have been killed. And until really the last uh, day of our trip in Iraq, we were not sure we were be able to get them. They didn't want really to, they were happy to talk to us, but they left the battlefield and they have like a break for one week. We need to pick up the right moment to interview them. One Scattered was in around Babylon, around. one was in Diala. Sometimes they were answering the phone and we are in Baghdad waiting for them every day. And it was the Ramadan. We it's had to July, the, uh, it was like July. 50 degrees. It was, we yeah. had, hmm. I think we finished like me at one o'clock interview. You know, yeah, yeah, most of them we would start after they'd eaten in the evening and finish at like yeah, midnight or one in the morning. So of course, you know, if we didn't have those interview, those master interview, then yeah, the whole the whole thing would. Have yeah, had we not had even one of those, yeah. one of the four soldiers, we probably would have. Had to, I mean, we would have killed to film with their family and their girlfriend, but yeah. we didn't meet a single woman the whole time we were in Iraq. We so. were not allowed <laughs> to meet. Uh, they didn't allow to film any, even from far away, even a silhouette would have not been allowed. The Iraqi uh, have, you know, a very traditional. They don't allow us to film woman. Uh, even, I mean, he's not there, my Yazidi, but it was impossible uh, mm. to film any woman. I remember one time I was filming, uh, trying to do a sequence with Hanmar in, in Baghdad, and by accident, his wife just passed through the camera and he asked to see the shot, you know, and politely they listened, you know, you, you cannot use this. So that is the, the only Compromise. That's the only thing I was not doing during the whole battle, and not to film is going back to see them. Even the, the mother, even mother, or any woman, I could not film actually any woman. Mm. No, no. Just we couldn't really no. even meet them. I mean, we, we, we would like sleep on the floors of the soldiers' houses because we'd like drive out to the middle of nowhere to film them. We'd like sleep on their floor for a couple of nights, and this food would arrive, and like we'd see kind of figures in the distance, but we weren't even allowed to mm. have any contact with the women. I'm even going so to give you a little anecdote is I have Hanmar, he has a nice little dog at home and they actually not even allow me to film him with his dog because they thought like it's an animal and it's not very, it's a bit insulting, it's not something nice to be filmed with the dog. Uh, so it's not, they're not easy, on the battle it's they were, it was easier to film them on the battle than actually the, when they were back. They're home. so different, so like Helen, Helen back again or lots of those kind of Af Afghanistan war films with like American soldiers where they're all just like in their underwear, crying, shouting, talking about their trauma. They're like, they wear it on their sleeve. Like Iraqi soldiers are very reserved and there's a culture of like 
respect and shit. So to actually to get them to open up and talk about nightmares and those kind of things was like really hard. But we were determined, like the film doesn't have a campaigning message, but we were very determined to treat them as we would treat British or American soldiers. Because, we, yeah, so we, they were no, we give people, them the same respect, yeah. <laughs> we uh -huh. did ask. Yeah. <laughs> but it was great. I think it's got a, you got a pretty good answer for why you didn't film with their girlfriends. That's pretty. pretty I think any exec would probably go. Yeah, right, fair enough. <laughs> Clearly tried. Yeah. yeah um, the, there's a lady at the back. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, they saw the 20 minute version that we did, and when we were filming the master interviews, they'd like quite annoyingly sit there on the phone just watching it over and over again and be like, do you know this bit? <laughs> yeah, we do know that bit. Jamie is lucky because they're actually nagging me every day because yeah. they want to see the film. They don't understand how it works. They think I'm going home, going on my laptop, and okay, guys, I can send you the clip. So <laughs> on daily basis, uh, especially Usain, the sniper, hmm. he really desperate. And I think yesterday he sent me a message. They okay, never mind, that's it. I don't want to see the film. <laughs> I don't want, I don't want. <laughs> but yes, yeah, I think they will be happy. I think they will be happy to see this film. Even the bits where they're doing stuff that we see as wrong, they probably wouldn't interpret it in the same way. Mm. Um, so I think they'll like Because there are some, I mean, there's a couple of scenes that, that sort of, that, uh, I mean, maybe you've made more of them in different versions, but this is the one that we sh we've all seen tonight. I mean, sending the civilian out, that was a pretty, amb I mean, it's not, actually, it's not ambiguous at all. I mean, that's... Uh, that's a highly immoral act in, in, a, in a war zone. I mean, what were, you, did, were you aware of what was going on at that point? And uh, I mean, I, I, yeah, of course, I felt something was going to happen. First of all, I thought the guy was a, a, a Daesh suspect. I mm. thought he was a, an easy suspect. But actually, you see him a few frames earlier in the sequence. He's the guy that doesn't have a shirt on. Running out, smile, yeah. who smiles at the camera. Yeah, very he's kind of, kind of uh, like <laughs> yeah. a very super <coughs> friendly smile. But yeah, that, that was actually the guy. And of course, it's, of course it's a war crime. Mm. Of course, it's, it's, I was, I sense it. I tried to keep some distance when it happened first. So I, I, do, I didn't want to step in the scene immediately. Mm. Uh, so just keep a bit of distance. And then I decided to go a bit closer. To make sure mm. what's going on. But where does that scene yeah. sit? I mean, sorry, I know this is a question, but I mean, I think it's important to look at that. So it's sort of left, not hanging, but there is no, there's no, there's no judgment attached to that, and the guys all come across quite well, and they're dancing and smiling and, and lovely. But what they do there is, is, is a war crime. Is morally ambiguous. What are you? Where? Where are you? What's your relationship with that footage? How do you feel about that? I think this is, this is unfortunately how there is no hero in the world. Mm. So you can see a scene where they act of a look or sounds like hero, and another scene they might look like just a bunch of bastards. But this is how this is war. Mm. And uh, when you are there, you know, there is such a, a level of stress, and unfortunately, some soldiers, some people sometimes make mistakes. Mm. And I don't try to justify at all their crime uh, in that occasion, but this is actually what happened. Mm. They were, yeah, yeah. And I would say what's interesting yeah. is they didn't 
had you filmed a British or American soldier doing that, they probably would have said straight after, like, you didn't film that, did you? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Whereas these guys were just, you know, yeah. it, it didn't yeah. even cross their mind yeah. that that was a transgression of what they should mm. do. Mm. And actually, isn't, this is the first version that we finished editing, and in subsequent versions, we did kind of, you know, wrangle with whether they need to fit, the film needed to make them more accountable for that mm. scene. And so it was something we were conscious of. Mm. Uh, but equally, we didn't want to turn it into, you know, a gotcha moment, like, mm. aha, a war crime, you know, mm. because it was just part of the, like, every day, you know, one, one moment they're calling their girlfriend, then 10 minutes later they're putting a gun to the civilian's head. It's mm. just, that was mm. just the, gen the natural flow. Yeah. Well, so I saw it once, I'm oh, sorry. I saw it happen once only. So, well, I'm just saying. I mean, and it happened once, and, and we use it, and we thought it was very important. Mm. Uh, but if, if it was something that was happening on a daily basis, the mm. film probably would not have been the same, obviously. Sure. It would be a different film. Yeah, sure. We've got time for two more before we have to wind up. So, yes? Just, just on a very personal level, When I am on the field, you have to keep some distance. Obviously, you have to be, I, I don't mean detached. It's very difficult to be totally emotionally detached to, to the scene. But I'm there to make a film. So I need to you know, keep, keep focus, keep my exposure right. So I'm behind my camera. And so I need, I need to be focused. But when, obviously, you come back, sometime, of course, of course it's takes you and like Anmar say, you know, when you go to war and uh, you change, of course. And you know, uh, during the all those months of editing, few more of them were killed, and they just send me a picture. Oh, Oliver, look, you know, that guy you were with for several weeks was killed. So of course, he affects you. But when I'm on the field, you need to have uh, the emotion. If you don't have the emotion, you cannot film. And I'm not. Uh, just pick up the camera and, and don't feel it. And it's because I feel it and I sense it that I can get, you know, maybe that close to them, that, that kind of picture. But at the same point, I need to keep some distance too. It's, am it's amazing you stayed as, as sane as you have because <laughs> he didn't, he couldn't communicate with, he could commu communicate with Anmar in English, none of the others spoke English. So mm. he'd be in this incredibly yeah. intense environment for weeks yeah. on end. ISIS would be meters away, even when they're sleeping at night, you know, just they'd move forward a couple of houses and they'd just like sleep on the floor. And Olivier would just sit there listening to podcasts over and over again, just to kind of, you know, ground himself in some mm. kind of reality. And I think that must have been so hard. So the isolation is difficult mm. because, uh, if James was with me, you know, in the evening, we could have maybe review the footage, have, have a chat together. I don't know, we, we someone to communicate also the risk assessment. You know, when you are on your own, the decision is your, uh, when you are on the field. Uh, but so yes, mentally, not only physically, because the sniper every day, the car bomb, the, the suicide attack, uh, but you need to fight against the uh, isolation uh, mentally. And that's, that's pretty hard also. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Really quick question, yeah. sorry. Yeah, cool. <laughs> Very quick um, camera question. Why 17 to 55? Why don't you want anything ah. more than that? Because I don't know how you've managed all that on that. Uh, okay, 
I'll try to be Sorry, brave or so. No, 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 no problem. Uh, I have been working with the C300 uh, with the 1755 for several years. True, it's not the most expensive, it's not the most beautiful glass on the market, but as you know, the Mark II, I'm not going into the detail, but it has a yeah, crop factor. So 17 is not actually not 17, but 28, 29, yes, exactly. Yes, so, yeah. so it's not super wide. Uh, when but you are in... The, the, the length on the other end, though. Yeah, but you need... I don't really use... I don't really zoom. Okay, okay there is moment, because when you are in that type of environment, you need to have... You cannot use only prime, you know, and, but you need a little bit of, you know, uh, to make compromise, so sometimes using a bit of zoom. But you will be surprised, and when it's wide open, uh, that lens is working very well, and also it's cheap. You know, I broke a lot of them. You know, the dust. Uh, the I cannot carry a cine lenses with me. Uh, it's also a light lens, uh, and I shoot on the battle handle. I don't use a rig. I, I don't know how people. Like, I cannot use a rig, mm. uh, and uh, that would nothing at all. I remove the the grip. The only thing that, and you can see in the, uh, in the film, is I use a big directional mic. I use an NTG free rod. So I'm able, even if I'm far away, like the scene where they put the, 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 the pistol on the guy watching for the sniper, you still, we were still able to. Is that on a top mic? Yeah, it's just a top mic. It's oh, big, yeah. it's bigger than the camera. Not yeah, the I NTG saw free, it, yeah. yeah. But I need a, this. I did a freeze frame on that, on that guy's phone. Like, what's he shooting on? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So it's uh, what is the what is the top mic again? Is the NTG free huh. rod? Yeah, it's that. very but good it, one. But it's just in, but it's very very directional. Yeah. I mean more than a four one six. Yeah, oh. and uh, it really it really saved me on the field because wow. you, obviously yeah. you don't go into mic. Uh, yeah, no radio mics at all. No, no. no um, I don't yeah. use a rig. I don't use a rig. No, I don't use a rig because for many reasons. The first one is for such difficult environment. I need to have, to have as much as mobility as possible. Mm. The camera is lighter, and I. There is circumstance when you use the rig, and you put your camera on your shoulder, that that's interesting, and you know, and and, and sometimes yes, I will use the rig, but for an environment like this one, first you you get tired pretty fast mm. with the rig. It's bigger, the movement and the motion of the camera is not the same, so really I prefer holding the camera handle, make it light as possible. And to be honest, I was surprised because I remember I decided not to go with the tripod and Dan was a bit concerned. I think, say, Olivier, is, is it going to be okay, no tripod? And uh, actually, yes, it's the, the, the C300 did a good job. He's basically a human tripod as well. He doesn't breathe when he when shoots. I film, I don't like, okay, he so is. I... I <laughs> Some people have sometimes, but I, I stop to breathe as long as I can. At least yeah. I count, mm. <laughs> not too long. Uh, and I try to, and I, and I shoot only in a viewfinder. I don't shoot on, on the screen. Yeah. yeah, I never shoot on the LCD screen uh, because I think it's for me. It's, it's depending for especially for a shoot like this one. I want to have uh, to keep the best exposure. I need to be to have the camera on the viewfinder. And also when you have the camera on the, on the viewfinder, you lock it against your body and your head, mm, mm. and it will be much more stable than if you are like this. I don't like to shoot on the LCD screen. Is that your stills background, do you think? Sorry? Is that your stills background? Probably. Because you're used to 
Probably, but I, I think that when you use the, your screen, sometimes I see some people working in the field, they're actually looking at the screen, and, I, and, and sometimes I feel like they're following what the camera tells them where to film, and they lose a bit the space where they are. And when I have on, when I'm on the viewfinder, I actually have the, the wall direction. Even in that Yeah, you. Ah, uh, you can look like this. So, gentlemen here. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just wanted to talk about my experience in uh, war zones before. And if there was ever a point if you were shooting that instead of things getting too dangerous, you would have had to go to the left between the trees. Yeah, well, uh, yes, I've done uh, many conflict and war zone, and I've been wounded once. That's why I wear a gloves, by the way. It's just because I lost a bit of my hand. In, uh, in the Libyan, in the war in Libya in 2011. It's not for the look. Um, and yes, uh, I'm not a war junkie. So I'm going to war only if I have a story. And when I'm there, and I thank Dan for trusting my, my, uh, the risk assessment that we all made together. But when I really feel that it's the time to go out, usually come almost one day to the next. I just, I cannot take it. It could be for many reasons. Maybe I have a very strong feeling that something is happening, and I try to follow my instincts. So if I have that strong feeling, I need I need to get out. So I just you know make a call. I say, guys, that's over. But usually it doesn't come on the second day. It usually come about you know five weeks or six weeks or even more. Yeah. And and I think there aren't many people that Dan or PBS or I would have trusted to be in this situation. You know, this is like beyond what most people feel is like an acceptable level of risk, but if anyone's going to do it, it would be Olivier. You know, he's, he, he's brave and he's been in very extreme situations, but he's not reckless. Mm. And, you know, he behaved like, impeccably with the unit. He you know, was never the first or the last person. He never kind of wandered off to get a pretty shot because he saw something. So we kind of, we trusted that he would be responsible. And you, yeah, so you see some friends sometime. I need to be aware that, like there is a scene that the one guy is wounded uh, in the, he's shot in the leg. I don't know if you remember. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. But I keep one frame because the sniper was still firing by, by the house. And I wish I would have come front of the guy and having his face and him coming to me. But I decided that that was you know, too risky for one shot to just move around. So that's why I keep him on one frame. So I, I don't have any regret, obviously, but um, that's the reason why I keep So I always try to do, to take the best risk assessment as possible. But again, it doesn't matter how experienced you are uh, in a war zone. Those guys are trained, especially <coughs> force, but you know, sometimes it's happening, And before we wind up, I think Dan has been mentioned a lot. Dan Edge is lurking at the back here. <laughs> and I Dan think Edge. one should also give him a slight round of applause, yeah. Dan, because you <laughs> without him. So, Thanks very much for coming. I'm sure there's still more questions, but I'm sure you guys are going to float around and snap all the free wine. <laughs> but uh, thank you very much. James thank Jones you. and Olivier Sarville. Thank you. Thank you.